On the morning that I spoke to Kyle Cheka, I dropped my son off at preschool and stopped to get some coffee on the way to work. And I wanted Kyle to try to guess what the coffee shop that I went to looked like. I wondered if that was something he could do. I think so. I mean, I'm going to use my mental magician powers and say that uh, there were some hanging pendant lamps that may have had Edison bulbs in them. There might have been some white subway tiles on the wall behind the counter, which might be like a nice marble or even concrete if it's really cool. Uh, Some nice reclaimed wood furniture or some vintage mid-century pieces that make you feel like you're in a nice hotel from 1955. Um, And then probably some nice ceramic cups that your cappuccino comes in. It was a latte to go, but the rest of this description is pretty spot on. Because Kyle has thought a lot about what particular signifiers a coffee shop today might possess. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker and has just written the book Filter World, How Algorithms Flattened Culture. In one part of the book, Kyle talks about how whenever he was traveling, he would type hipster coffee shop into Yelp and Google Maps. Hipster, in the 2010s at least, was the signifier of kind of millennial era consumerism and taste. Um, And the coffee shops all had to kind of project their image online through these apps like Yelp or Google Maps. So it was a kind of like index. I could I could use the phrase through the search algorithm, through Yelp's rankings and star ratings to find exactly what I was looking for. When you wrote about this phenomenon in 2016, you called it airspace. What does that mean? At the time, I, I used that word airspace to talk about the style that was happening, like the, the generic minimalist white subway tile mid-century furniture thing. And I was seeing that not just in coffee shops, but in co-working spaces and restaurants and hotels and kind of like the whole new geography that was popping up with the sharing economy. When readers saw the term airspace, they knew exactly what Kyle meant and started emailing him pictures of coffee shops and hotel lobbies that hewed to this same shareable aesthetic. It was a geography and a physical space that had a lot in common with the digital spaces that we're in. It was kind of like interconnected and driven by the internet. Was there a point in which you realized, oh, this is more than this design phenomenon of coffee shops and WeWorks and what have you that you realized, I think this is rippling out into something bigger? Yeah, like the, to me, the coffee shop aesthetic was kind of the canary in the coal mine. Like it was the most visible symbol of this homogenization that was happening over the internet. So there was that design, right? Like it was a cliche, stereotypical design that I think a lot of people can observe. And it became a cliche. It was boring. You can kind of see it everywhere. But I think the, like, reality of it, the source of it, ran much deeper. It ran, Kyle says, to a handful of tech companies creating a larger handful of algorithms that drove our behavior, whether we knew it or not. And it wasn't just about one style, but this deeper homogenization and sameness that was creeping into a lot of different spaces, driven by the Instagram feed, and now the TikTok feed and Netflix streaming and Spotify recommendations. It was kind of this 
aesthetic that spread everywhere via the feeds. Today on the show, are we living in filter world? A place where algorithms, not people, decide what we like. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Kyle describes Filter World as the vast interlocking and yet diffuse network of algorithms that influence our lives today. And while you may have thought of that in terms of politics, how Facebook tends to surface outrageous selection content, for example, Kyle's book focuses on culture and how, he says, the world of algorithmic recommendations favors a certain kind of culture. Things that are easier, less challenging to digest, made for sharing and recommending over and over and over. I want you to try to describe filter world as a place to me. What what are its defining characteristics? Like if you're an inhabitant of filter world, what is your experience? It's almost like being a rat in a maze. <laughs> like you are you are surrounded or we are surrounded as internet users by all of these different algorithmic systems and we're constantly being guided in one direction or another by recommendations. So Spotify is pushing a song at you or Netflix is pushing a a new TV show. So I think as an inhabitant of filter world, we're kind of just immersed in this like bubble of our own desires or a projection of our own desires that come to us through digital platforms. Um, I use the word filter because these feeds and recommendations are a kind of filter. Like they sort content for you. They try to guide you towards something that fits with your taste. But I think that becomes like an inescapable environment. <laughs> like it's a, a scrim or a filter that you can't actually see through that, that blocks hmm. you from experiencing other things. One of the parts of the book that I found really interesting was this moment where you describe a shift from chronological feeds, sort of the infancy of social media, to algorithmic recommendations. W- when do you start to pinpoint that shift? Yeah, I think there really was a shift over the course of the 2010s. Like when when we all got on social media, when social networks were beginning to be popular in say like the late 2000s and early 2010s, most of the feeds there were linear, meaning that they were chronologically ordered. You saw the posts that were posted most recently, and then you saw the older ones. And that's just how all content was treated. And then there's this kind of watershed moment around 2015, 2016, where tech companies decided to make the feeds more algorithmic, to mix in a greater proportion of recommendations versus things you chose to follow. And that happened with the Facebook feed. It happened with Instagram recommendations. It happened with the Netflix homepage. Um, They all kind of moved toward sorting content for you rather than letting you choose exactly what you were going to see. That has been covered fairly relentlessly in the media, talking about the 2016 election and Facebook showing, you know, more inflammatory content, for example, things things that are more likely to provoke an emotional response, getting boosted by the algorithm, etc. But you focus so much on culture and taste. That is the heart of this book. And 
There is a quote in which you say the overall digital environment is dictated by tech companies with ruthlessly capitalist expansionary motives, which do not provide the most fertile ground for culture. (laughs) Sounds bad. (laughs) It does sound bad. But I I want examples of that. I want to understand where you see Filter World sanding off the difficult edges of art or movies or music. Yeah, I mean, I think... One of the issues of Filter World is just that so much of our consumption of culture has become mediated by these feeds. Like, whenever we want to listen to a song, we're on Spotify and getting kind of redirected by the platform. Whenever we want to watch a TV show or film, we are like not just choosing what to see, but experiencing the recommendations of Netflix. So I think our consumption is being guided in manipulative ways. For one example, Netflix changes the thumbnails of the the shows it presents to you based on what it sees as your personal taste. So not only is the selection of content on there changed, but actually how it's presented to you. And so if you're a person who, say, only watches rom-coms, but Netflix wants to push you toward a sports documentary or something, it might show you an image that leads you to think a sports documentary is a rom-com. And that, like... It kind of fools you into not thinking about your own taste and into consuming something that doesn't necessarily appeal to you. On the creator side, because all of our attention is so mediated by these feeds, creators like artists, musicians, designers, whoever, have to tailor their work in a way that works for the feed. And I mean, you see that on TikTok where music producers focus on making sound bites that are like 10 seconds long that are so densely packed with sound and, and drama that you just instantly, they instantly stick in your head and they're repeatable infinitely. And I mean, in one case in the book, I spoke with a, an illustrator friend of mine, Pally Bateman, who kind of experienced this algorithmic pressure on Instagram when she started doing this series of, of drawings of just like little self-help commandments or suggestions on brightly colored construction paper. And immediately that work blew up on Instagram. Like that became her most successful project ever. She was getting tons of followers. But then she also experienced this pressure to keep doing that, to like serve the audience that was only coming to her for that thing. Hmm. And for her, it felt like that was just a distortion of her own creative practice. Like that's not what she wanted to be known for. That's not what she wanted to chase in a way to keep her audience's attention. And I guess that makes sense if you are thinking about someone who is is gaining fame or gaining gaining followers or gaining money fr- from existing on the internet. But there there's a section of the book where you seem to posit, and I want to dig into this, that it goes deeper than that. That that the popularity of a Sheila Hetty or a Nausgaard or or this sort mm. of like particular kind of autofiction is is what is. Is the rise of these books because we are used to viewing the world in an Instagram protagonist way? (laughs) I think, I mean, Instagram and other feeds have really shaped how we see everything in the world. Like all forms of culture has to kind of flow through them. And in in the case of autofiction, my book was kind of responding to this academic Mark McGurl's work on Amazon, the like algorithmic marketplace of books that exists on there. 
And he argued that Amazon and, and algorithmic recommendations kind of slot authors into very specific genres of stuff, whether that's like romance or fantasy or something like autofiction, which has kind of become a dominant literary mode. And to me, the, the way that autofiction resonates with Instagram is that we want the author to be a kind of influencer. Like we want the author, we want to know about the author's life. We want to know what kinds of coffee shops they're going to. We want to know what's in their home. We want to kind of consume their lifestyle in a way as much as we consume their work of, of literature itself. So I think there's a resonance with how autofiction plays with like the presentation of the self and authenticity in the same way that like an influencer on Instagram kind of presents some of their self and like shows off some of their real identity, but then it's also kind of inauthentic and artificial as well. I talked to some of my colleagues about this and sort of said, like, do you see experience as a flattened culture? And and one question that came back to them was like, but isn't it kind of fun and cool to learn about cottage core, gremlin core, <laughs> dark academia? Like, even if these are like weird flash in the pan things that circulate via social media, they seem organic, no? Not not prescribed by Anna Wintour on high. Mm, yeah, I think there's this bottom-up generation of culture that is really interesting online. Like, I think these digital platforms highlight a ton of interesting stuff, and they allow us to experience the breadths of what everyone makes. Like, there are fewer gatekeepers. And I love exploring that field, like Gremlin Core, <laughs> or like... <laughs> coastal grandmother aesthetic, like whatever the one is that we're talking about this week or month, it's always fun to, to know. But I think what becomes overwhelming is like the specificity and speed that these things emerge and pass by with. Like all of a sudden, everyone is talking about mob wife core or something. Hmm. That's the one I've been seeing this week. TikTok has spoken, the clean girl aesthetic is out and the mob wife aesthetic is in. I am so excited. It's time for the fur coats. It's time for the makeup girlies. It's time for series, all black leather outfits. This is everything. I want dramatic. I want maximalism. So let's talk about how to dress like this and what it means. For and it's just mom. like think big for the trends percolate up and then pass by so quickly that you almost don't have a chance to actually engage with what the content is there. Like, to me, it's almost... It creates this atmosphere in which you... There's more pressure to keep up with a thing that's new and a thing that's, like, going viral this second than there is to really, like, go deep in a single one of these areas. So I worry that it's almost, like, too much flavor of the week and we're not allowing ourselves to think slower thoughts and, like develop a, a different sense of identity. I mean, I contrast kind of the the flash in the pan, coastal grandmother, et cetera, cottagecore trend on TikTok with like maybe a more long-term cultural identity like punks or goths or, you know, even the hipster in a way was like produced a more meaningful body of culture than just this instant adaptation to an aesthetic that then passes by when it no longer gets engagement. When we come back, the anxiety that comes from not knowing what the algorithms are going to do with us. In one of the most fascinating sections of the book, Kyle writes about something called algorithmic anxiety. 
Because by now, we all know that algorithms are affecting our lives, but we don't always know exactly how. The term itself was coined by an academic to describe the way Airbnb hosts tried to alter their property listings to appeal to the company's search algorithm, changing the photos of their listings or describing them with slightly different keywords so they would be shown to more potential renters. And these things didn't actually work. Like, they were just strategies of coping with the unknowability of that digital platform. And I think we all kind of experienced that unknowability. Like, we don't know what the TikTok feed is thinking of us. We don't know exactly how the Netflix homepage works. And so we're constantly negotiating with how our behaviors are being perceived by the technology, what signals we're sending or not sending. And I think we also feel anxiety because we can't talk back to these systems. Like, Hmm. they exert so much power over us, and we exist through them so often. But we can't change how the the X algorithm works. We can't tell Netflix to stop recommending one thing or another. Right. I have no idea how Spotify is going to put this podcast up today, right? (laughs) It could display it prominently or not. Right, right. And those are technological systems that we just don't have any agency over. And almost, I mean, no human does in a way, because they are quite black box systems that are operating at a scale that is beyond any one person. There maybe is not a person choosing to highlight one Spotify song or another. It's just what's popular and what gets automatically recommended. But I think what I struggle with is the human response to that, right? Like you talk about this woman who bought leg warmers because she saw a bunch of influencers buy leg warmers. And and, and it, it seemed to really inspire like a crisis of confidence in her that she sort of felt like she didn't know who she was and she couldn't figure out her own style or identity. And And maybe this is because I'm 48, but I read that section of the book and thought, why are you letting this do this to you? Just wear what you want to wear. Who cares what the internet thinks? Yeah, I mean, it sounds so simple <laughs> like to just say, oh, well, think about what you like. Uh, don't kind of separate yourself from the feeds. But I mean, you know, as a millennial and talking to a lot of younger people, like Gen Z people on TikTok particularly, their identity is almost more manipulated by the feeds online. Like they have experienced this for more of their lives their tastes or preferences were already developed within these systems. And so I think there's a sense in which they haven't learned to distrust them or for a long time it's worked and shown them what they did like or they believed it showed them what they liked unless they trusted the feed Hmm. more than they might trust a human tastemaker. They haven't had those kinds of conversations or developed like almost the skill of thinking about what you as a person like as opposed to what's popular. I mean, to me, that feels extraordinarily naive. (laughs) I mean, tech companies have occupied so much of our mental landscape in a way. Like, the more online you are, the more you're influenced by these systems. And so I think it is easy to forget that there's a world outside of that, to forget that you can figure out what you like, not on the TikTok feed, not just chase what influencers are doing or what Twitter pushes at you. That that same woman, Valerie Peter, she was on Twitter or on X and was looking up astrology content and had been interested in it for a while. Uh, 
But all of a sudden, she got bombarded with all of this astrology that she then started to dislike and, and felt like kind of misled or um, anxious about getting. But she couldn't tell Twitter to stop giving her this content. Like she couldn't send a strong enough signal to stay away from the astrology. And I feel like it it shows in a way how the feeds direct you in, in ways that you don't necessarily like. You bring me to the idea of pushing back. And I, I feel like there are sort of two buckets there, right? One is on the individual level and one is on the societal or, or regulatory level. The final chapter in this book is about your algorithmic cleanse or algorithm cleanse. Tell me about that. <laughs> I, I wanted to do a kind of algorithm cleanse, like almost like a diet or like, a you know, giving up something for Lent or dry January, like just getting outside of, of the feeds in part. Cause I just become so overwhelmed with them. Like I am as online as anyone. I was on X for work. I was looking at Instagram all the time. And so I kind of decided that the only way I could truly see who I was without these things was to just get off them for a while. And so I deleted everything from my phone, logged off all of the apps. And I was kind of confronted with this sudden silence of the absence of the feeds and the absence of these thousand posts a day that I, that I was used to consuming. But I think like cutting that stuff off and going cold turkey did kind of reframe how I think about digital platforms. And it, it reminded me in a way that you don't need them, <laughs> that there's like a world outside of what gets recommended to you. And it just, I think it lessened that algorithmic anxiety simply because I didn't have to contend with this image of myself that existed online that I was constantly being manipulated by. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit that there's a part of me that was like, dude, just log off. <laughs> Easier said than done sometimes. Well, that, that brings me to the macro stuff. I mean, and this is where I think you get to some of the most interesting parts of the book is that perhaps culture and society is being manipulated even if you have logged off, even if you are not a part of this on a micro level, even if you're Marty Scorsese, you feel the influence of these companies. And it makes me wonder if this is a question of algorithmic influence or monopolistic influence? If there were 500 companies driving social media feeds, would it be different? I think it would be. I mean, as users, we kind of feel that we don't have that much choice of what we experience. Like Meta as a company owns Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, which are like three of the biggest platforms in the world. So even if you are not on those platforms, the actions and decisions of billions of people around the world are being guided by them. So that impacts what kinds of music gets made. It impacts what films get produced to, to respond to the Martin Scorsese concern. It influences how restaurants advertise themselves and how what kinds of dishes they put on their menus. Because even if you don't care about how something looks on TikTok, a lot of other people will. So I think we are all kind of living in this hmm. world shaped by shaped by algorithmic recommendations. And I think increased competition, like if we can break down the monopolies of Meta and Google, would actually lead to a wider diversity of experiences. Like we could change how algorithmic feeds work, perhaps, or we could 
drift to different flavors of platforms that might better serve our personal preferences. At the end of writing this book and like in talking about it, it just strikes me so much that the idea that a billion people should be on one digital platform and all being pushed through the same pipes in a way is is deeply disturbing. <laughs> like that's that's the biggest homogenizing force almost that we've ever seen in human experience. And it just is kind of gross to me at this point. So then let's talk policy. You know, you you talk a bit about Section 230, which which basically inures companies to, you know, legal action about the content on their platforms. Um, what would you like to see? I realize that you write about culture, that you're not a policy reporter, but but it does come up. In the United States, we've had a really hard time passing any regulation on social media just because there isn't fully the political willpower and the platforms themselves have have become so dominant. They spend so much money on lobbying. But like, if you look outside of the US at European Union regulation, they are actively putting laws into place that give users rights to their data, for example, yeah. or give you the ability to opt out of surveillance. Or even with the more recent Digital Services Act in the EU, it mandates that you can opt out of algorithmic feeds. Like, if you don't want to experience recommendations, you will have the option to not do that. And that's almost unthinkable (laughs) in the United States right now. Um, You see the platforms kind of responding to those regulations and changing how they work for everyone because... It's easier for them to just make one big change. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I think actual regulation in the United States where these companies exist could accomplish a lot more and just give us more options for how we live online. How should one arrive at the idea of taste and culture? Because you talk a lot about, you know, the the local DJ or the art critic or whatever. But, you know, I think about going to the movies in the early 90s and my family had this joke about our movie theater as the Bethesda monoculture. That it... (laughs) That it catered to, you know, upper middle class white people. And those were the tastes that spread society wide. And so, like, the democratizing aspects of the internet are incredible. I worry that if we go the other way, it's racist, it's classist, it's sexist, that you're subject to the taste of just a handful of people. Yeah, there were these gatekeepers in the past, like these human gatekeepers. Well, and there still are. Yeah. (laughs) And now I think we have this algorithmic gatekeeping mechanism, but we do have the total democratization of publishing and of allowing anyone to put something online and access an audience. And I think that's amazing and like really a positive force in culture. What I don't like is the total domination of algorithmic gatekeeping in a way like anyone can put something online but that doesn't guarantee that you're going to get an audience for it you don't have a right to other people's attention and algorithmic feeds push people's attention toward a very specific set of content that works for the platforms that sparks the right kinds of reaction in people so i think you know, we we gain something in the system, in the ecosystem of the internet, that anyone can put something out there, but we also lose it with just the sheer extent that we're, our attention is directed by algorithmic feeds. 
we're not just seeing everything that everyone puts out there. And in the from the perspective of creators, like the independent kid who might upload music to Spotify, Spotify literally put into place a new rule that they are not going to monetarily reward any song under a thousand streams. So that's that essentially argues that if you're if you can't reach over a thousand streams, if you can't game the system and, and get an audience, then your art is literally worthless. That you shouldn't get rewarded for it. And that means you can't make it in the future. Like I think this this algorithmic ecosystem is unsustainable for the production of culture. That makes me wonder how much of this might be transient. Either because as a consumer, you age out, right? You 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 reach a point and you just think like, this is who I am and I'm okay with that. Or because if you're a younger person and you've been brought up with this, you're pretty savvy. Like you might start to question what the algorithm is doing. Did you find any points in your reporting process where you thought like, maybe I'm capturing a moment in time, but it's not always going to be this way? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the internet changes so much that one fear I had in writing the book was just that I would be capturing something that wasn't relevant anymore, that had like disappeared and faded into the ether. And I think change has happened a bit slower than I expected. Hmm. I think the like the way that I framed the book or the way that I think about it now is that it it's about the internet of the 2010s. It's about how a certain ecosystem evolved, how we responded as consumers to it, how digital platforms developed to be the way they are. Um, and now I kind of see the ennui and the anxiety growing to the point that people are rebelling against these systems and looking really intentionally for alternatives. I don't think the alternatives exist yet necessarily, like in part due to these the lack of monopoly regulation and, and things like that. But there's a desire for a new internet. There's like a, a desire to not exist in this in this filter world and to move beyond it. And I think by the end of the book, like when I finished writing a year or so ago, you know, I started to watch Twitter fall apart under yeah. Elon Musk. I started to see the, you know, Facebook scrambling and trying to do the metaverse. <laughs> like that didn't work either. Uh, so I think by the by the tail end, I got the sense that we're like moving out of a phase of the internet that happened. But that phase dictated so much of what culture was popular in the past, you know, eight to 10 years. Does that leave you hopeful? Yes, it does. I mean, the internet's always changing. Like, like there's always new things popping up and new mechanisms and experiments to try. And like human creativity, there's no death of culture here. There's no end to the human desire to make art and to make original stuff. Um, I just think the digital ecosystem could support that more. And what I'm hopeful for is like different kinds of platforms that are more sustainable, both for our attention and for the careers of the artists and creators. Kyle Chaka, thank you so much for coming on and spending this time with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Kyle Chaka is a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of Filter World, How Algorithms Flattened Culture. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell, Anna Phillips, and Patrick Ford. 
Our show is edited by Mia Armstrong-Lopez. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. And TBD is part of the larger What Next family. We're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you are a fan of this show, I have a little request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. All right, we will be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. Listener.